Hello and welcome to Rippercast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And welcome to episode 67, They Say I'm a Doctor Now, Ha Ha, in which we're going to debate the various indications for and against the perpetrator of five or possibly six of the Whitechapel murders, demonstrating any level of surgical or anatomical knowledge. The perceptive amongst you would have noticed that I am not Jonathan Mengis, for tonight, perhaps for tonight only. I am Trevor Bond and I will be your host. Jonathan Mengis is present, he is in the Rippercast attic as we speak and will be handling production duties and may pop up every now and then with some considered thoughts. So as well as myself and Jonathan joining us tonight we have Ali Ryder, needs no introduction, well known to the people of this parish, uh, herself oftentimes host of the Rippercasts. We have Mark Ripper a true crime author, researcher, uh, and historian who, under the guise of M.W. Aldridge, has published two books, The Moat Farm Mystery and Murder and Crime, Whitechapel and District. We have John Rees, who is a scout leader, actor, uh, spoke at the 2013 Jack the Ripper conference and has just finished putting on a theatrical run of Murder and Mysteries of Jack the Ripper in the Furnace Theatre in Clenethley. We have Ian Wilson, an enthusiast of the Ripper case, an avid book collector, who you may remember from the last episode of Oh Dear Boss. And we have our very special guest tonight, uh, an ex-colleague of mine, Dr Mark Kerbishley, a senior house officer in the NHS, uh, and now living and working in Manchester. Mark has very little prior knowledge of the Ripper case, which sets him apart from most, if not all, previous guests on Rippercasts. And I've sent him some background uh, in preparation for tonight and we're going to hear from an outside perspective some some thoughts on some of these issues we're also hoping to have one of the editorial team of ripperologist magazine uh, gareth williams with us tonight he seems to be having some technical difficulties at the moment but hopefully gareth will join us at some point welcome everybody hello Good trevor evening. thank you hello. Hi, hi trevor hello trevor <laughs> Hi, Gareth. And, uh, Hello, Gareth. Yes, technical difficulties over. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes. Hello, everybody. Uh, and just for clarity, we are going to refer to Mark Ripper and Mark Kerbishley as Mark and Dr. Mark for the night. So, as I said, we're going to be looking tonight at a question that remains uh, controversial amongst students of the case uh, and one that has a great impact on, for example, uh, a number of suspect theories, a great deal of doctors and medical men as well as mortuary attendants and horse slaughterers and barber surgeons, etc., have been accused of these crimes over the years based on the assumption that the killer must have had some kind of medical knowledge. And, of course, if you come down on the other side of the issue, you're looking at a completely different pool of suspects for that. If anyone wants to follow through what we're talking about, the copies of the inquest reports I've sent to Dr Mark were, with the exception of day one of the Mary Ann Nichols inquest, which I took from the Daily News of the 3rd of September, 1888, I have sent him all the reports as they are transcribed in the official documents uh, tab of the Casebook website. So I should quickly say, last little bit of housekeeping before we start, that by its very nature on this podcast tonight, we will be discussing inquest testimony and issues of the interests, of course, of uh, scholarly and respectable discussion. Uh, but anyone of a sensitive nature may wish to exercise some caution. And this is probably not the episode of Ripcast to try and start your small children on. So 
little confession from the host here. Uh, I go back and forth on this issue. Uh, I've never really made my mind up one way or the other. Uh, if we can have a quick sort of audio show of hands from our assembled personages, does anyone have a particularly strong feeling for or against any level of surgical knowledge on behalf of the killer as they stand? Dr. Mark, you are excused from this vote for the moment. Anyone want to put their put their audio hand up and say, I, I am in the surgical knowledge camp at this point? I'm. Uh, this is Jonathan Mangus here, Trevor. Um, I would uh, stick my hand up and say that I do not believe the murderer possessed any surgical knowledge whatsoever. Yeah, Trevor, yeah. Likewise, I would agree with, with Jonathan on that count. I would say that it is, as of all things, completely unproven. And it also sort of depends on what you mean by quote-unquote surgical knowledge. Like, True. if are we just talking about a guy, I mean, like, slaughterhouse surgery, anatomical knowledge, uh, basic uh, biology knowledge, or, you know, was it someone who had no concept of human anatomy whatsoever or any sort of anatomy? Was it, you know, that's like one extreme end, and then the other is a skilled surgeon. I don't believe he was a skilled surgeon. There, there's knowledge <clears throat> gaps in there that he might have had. I'll, I'll clarify my statement by saying that I don't believe that he would, would, had any surgical training. Now, uh, possibly picking up a book on anatomy a la uh, Severin Klauslowski is uh, a possibility. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with um, with Ali and and with Jonathan there. That's uh, that sums up my position pretty well. Uh, I.e., no formal training, but uh, but maybe an awareness, possibly self-taught from books of, of where various things may have been, but nothing beyond that. I'm I'm a fence sitter. Um, I'm leaning slightly more towards if there was knowledge, it was self-taught, but. Uh, I, I'm I'm I don't, I'm not ruling out entirely the possibility of some surgical training. So yeah, I'm I'm on the fence. Interesting. So the whole issue of surgical or anatomical knowledge probably begins on day one of the Marianne Nichols inquest. I would argue when Dr. Cluellin stated that uh, in reply to a question from a juror that he felt the killer must have possessed some quote rough anatomical knowledge. Uh, and from that point on, obviously, various doctors involved with the different murders, of which there were several, and other medical men, coroners, etc., uh, expressed opinions, even at the time, or on both sides of this debate. Uh, I wonder if anyone, Gareth, perhaps, um, feels like giving us a quick resume of the most important personages involved from a, from a medical perspective and who fell down on which side of that fence. Sure. I mean, I mean, the, the the key medical operative in in connection with the Nichols murder was, as as you said, Trevor, uh, Dr. Rhys Ralph Llewellyn, Although his his name varies in, in in different reports and in different books, but we'll we call him R. R. Llewellyn, There you go, or Doctor L. Um, yeah, a bit of a strange character. I think he he turned up at the scene of the murder. Uh, Llewellyn um, um, made a brief examination at at the scene of of the crime, sufficient to establish that. Life was extinct, um, and Polly Nichols's body was subsequently taken away to the mortuary, where far more uh, extensive uh, wounds were later discovered. And Doctor Llewellyn was was summoned back to the mortuary to uh, perform a more rigorous examination. Um, 
unfortunately, in the case of <clears throat> the the Nicholas murder in particular being the first, I guess, of a yet-to-be-discovered series of murders, um, we don't actually have much evidence preserved, in, uh, not even in the form of uh, press reports. So the... The, um, the evidence that Dr. Llewellyn assembled um, hasn't really been preserved particularly well for posterity. So it's quite difficult to ascertain <coughs> the extent or, or, or even the nature of um, Holly Nichols' wounds beyond the fact that we know that she suffered severe lacerations, plural, uh, to the abdomen to the extent that her uh, viscera protruded from uh, some of the wounds. And that's about it, really, um, that in terms of the abdominal mutilations um, and, of course, some very deep cuts to the neck, um, which is probably the cause, uh, the cause of death. Um, but beyond that, we don't know whether or not uh, any organs had been removed from the abdomen or, indeed, whether any attempt had been made to remove any uh, organs from the abdomen. So I think... On the basis of the Nichols murder, the first murder in the series, it's very hard to use that one as, as any sort of benchmark to ascertain whether the killer may or may not have possessed any surgical knowledge or skill. Which begs the question, doesn't it, why Clewellyn felt that there was something in the murder that suggested rough anatomical knowledge? Because, as you say, from what we know with the proviso that, as you say, what we know that he's said is not necessarily everything that he said or everything what we know that he found isn't necessarily everything that he found but from what we know that he said he found it's difficult to see what out of the injuries he does tell us about he felt would have needed any anatomical knowledge to perform isn't it indeed yeah. Yeah, isn't there some vague quote from him where he says something along the lines of he must have had some rough anatomical anatomical knowledge because he seemed to attack all the vital parts I believe he said that um, regarding the Nichols murder but didn't actually expand on it in any way he did, that, 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 that is reported in the press um, in, in response to jury members so this isn't a direct quote, this is some pressman's transcription of, or summary if you like of, yeah. of, of the proceedings of, of, of the inquest uh, for which the official records don't survive so we don't have the verbatim, blow-by-blow blow testimony that Dr Llewellyn may have given. So there may be something left out there on the editor's floor that may have given us a bit more insight uh, into what Dr Llewellyn meant by vital parts. Of course, the um, um, the the throat and neck and the, the, the carotid arteries are pretty vital parts. <laughs> uh, perhaps, he, perhaps he just meant those because both had been severed because this, this was a, a, a cut to the throat which basically circumnavigated the neck. Um, so, I mean, taken literally, he attacked all vital parts would mean he'd have had to have attacked the heart, you know, the brain, um, yeah. and various other organs as well, which is clearly preposterous. So something's gone missing in translation there, I believe. What was Llewellyn's uh, medical experience? Do we know? I don't. I know very little about him. I, I think he was a yeah. surgeon I mean, in private practice, wasn't he, he living down yeah. on Whitechapel Road? I guess he was the, the equivalent of your local GP. To some extent, mm, so, uh, would, would, would 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 a local GP have uh, you know if you showed the local GP a murder victim, would they be able to look at it and uh, say definitively, oh yes, uh, there, there's anatomical knowledge displayed by the person who inflicted those injuries? Because presumably they wouldn't be an expert in that area. No, presumably they wouldn't. But I think that um, I was recently I am in the process of uh, working on um, 
the manuscript um, written by one of Rippercast's previous guests, Sarah Beth Hopton, who's writing about the Mary Piercy murder. Mm. And um, when uh, the body of Phoebe Hogg was discovered in Crossfield Road, Mary Piercy's victim, uh, they ran around the corner and, and got a, got the equivalent of Doctor Llewellyn, right? The 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 nearest doctor. Yeah. To where this was this was standard practice. Go and find the nearest doctor. And the doctor they brought was actually a, a an expert in I think it's um, hearing, you know, diseases of the ear, <laughs> things like otology, right? So, so I mean, I don't think he was qualified to to necessarily to sort of establish detail about what had happened to this poor lady who had had her her skull. Um, smashed in from behind and her throat cut. That would not be his field of expertise. On the other hand, I, I guess what, what that what also kind of contributes to that process is, that of course, later on, when the body was removed to the police station and then the mortuary, it was seen by the the divisional police surgeon, who would have it be expected to have more experience dealing yes, with yeah. those aspects of, of, of cases. Um, but I think that I think Llewellyn wasn't chosen really uh, to answer your question. I think Llewellyn clearly wasn't chosen because he was expected to be able to make interpretations of that sort. He was he was literally chosen because he was the man on the spot. Yeah. I get the impression he was that that yeah just send for the nearest doctor was more a case of it wasn't they weren't sending for him for any kind of investigative opinion. They were sending for him almost just to officially declare a dead. Yeah, yeah, pronounced death. So, wh- wh- why in the uh, the case of Polly Nichols hasn't uh, why is Llewellyn giving the opinion and not another um, surgeon? Yeah, I mean, I think the the real reason is that Llewellyn's um, medical practice uh, was just around the corner. Yeah, one five two Whitechapel Road, I think. Whitechapel Road, yeah. So, I mean, this this was this was general. Um, <laughs> Pardon the double meaning, but this was the general practice at the time. When these, <laughs> at, at least amongst police surgeons, they tended to be, uh, to a large extent, uh, local general practitioners who were affiliated in some way to uh, the local police force. And in fairness to Dr. Llewellyn, um, I, I just got my A to Z out, or A to Z. Um, I did have a copy of the Jewish study Bible on my desk by mistake, so I don't know where that could have led us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, he so uh, well in had, had qualified some twenty years earlier, so he, he was clearly not a rookie, um, and he was very highly qualified in in uh, obstetrics for one thing. Um, although um, his examination of the lower abdomen in this case seems to have been a bit cursory the first time round, but we'll we let him off there because it was early in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, he he wasn't inexperienced by any means, and and you know given his 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 uh, his handiness, or you know the fact that he lived in in Whitechapel Road, I guess his services would have been called upon a lot by uh, by J Division Police. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think as well with with Nichols, there is some discussion about how long before she was discovered, her throat had been cut and things like whether there were still signs of life there. So. Um, it wouldn't just be the case that you would call the doctor to pronounce death. It would be that you call the doctor to try to sustain life. That seems like a reasonable objective. So, Dr. Mark, just bring you in here quickly. So, I think you've had a chance to read through some of the inquest testimony for the Nichols murder, uh, Dr. Mark. Did you have any thoughts uh, on reading that? I mean, from what specifically I've read, and as you mentioned, I don't really have much further knowledge than what's been put in front of me. 
Um, again, it doesn't. Nothing ex- kind of screamed out to me as surgically skilled. I mean, anyone could have caused the kind of wounds that he did. So I'm kind of not really convinced either way, just by reviewing what was sent over on the first case. Well, Nichols. So I think we'll, we'll move on from Polly Nichols then, unless anyone else has got any thoughts. I think we've all come to the conclusion, really, that there isn't really enough there to point us one way or the other. Uh, the only thing I would say, I'd be interested in anyone's opinion on this, was, was Gareth touched on the suggestion that there might be other aspects of the Nichols murder that haven't passed down to us through time. But we then went on to talking about uh, someone, I think it was John uh, Reese brought up the fact that unlike in the later murders, now obviously you have to bear in mind that by the time of the later murders, clearly the police are taking, realising they're dealing with something much larger than they were obviously at the start with the Nichols murder. Um, so there, there's a, a much higher level of investigation there anyway. Um, but there were divisional surgeons and other opinions brought in on the other cases, um, and obviously there wasn't with Nichols. So, again, I think that probably points towards there wasn't anything, unlike with Annie Chapman, for example, there wasn't anything that warranted a second opinion. So I think maybe that's as close as we can get to a point that actually, if there are... Uh, elements of the Nichols murder that haven't passed down through time, those probably still aren't details about organs being removed, etc., because you, you would have thought that they would have maybe gone beyond uh, the good old Dr. Clewellyn in that case. But that's just my opinion. So, if we move on to Annie Chapman then, uh, on the 8th of September, 1888. Don't need to tell any of our listeners that. And... This is where it all gets rather interesting, isn't it? Does anyone want to take the lead on a, a quick discussion about Annie Chapman? I, I think with, with the Chapman, there's, there's, you know, there's the medical knowledge from the organs removed, but there's also the, the amount of time it would take and, and the time of death as well. It's uh, the key points there, isn't it? I mean, of course, with the with Chapman, I think I think I'm right in saying it's it's Chapman where we get Wim Baxter's bizarre theory about the. The American surgeon wanting to give away a free uterus yeah. with every copy of his yeah. magazine, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which is always yeah. always worth always worth a mention. And uh, that theory is quite influential on Trevor Marriott's interpretation of how Annie Chapman's organs came to be removed. So it kind of does still exist. Just because it Trevor Marriott thinks a theory doesn't mean it exists. Yeah, this would be where my snarky comments come in. <laughs> Shall we talk about Mr. Marriott quickly? A former Rippercast guest, of course. Uh, so, author of various books on the case now, of course, uh, Trevor Marriott, 21st, Jack the Ripper, the 21st Century Investigation, amongst them, uh, and others. And as Mark uh, rightly says, he's. I would maybe maybe to give him his due, he's he's probably one of the the most strongly focused on the the issue. The, the, it's probably one of the authors who puts the strongest focus today on uh, various issues of the the minutiae of the medical evidence, and uh, he certainly looks at things outside the box sometimes. I, I don't I think he'd be quite 
pleased to hear you say that, so I'm not speaking out of turn there. Uh, but he is someone who, in his various books, attempted to bring in medical research of his own into uh, looking at this question. So, uh, as Ali said, I know she's got some thoughts on that, and I know Mark Ripper has also been has some thoughts on the uh, the approach of Mr. Marriott to this issue. So maybe we should take a short diversion in that direction quickly. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, a short diversion, uh, I think, um, goes goes to this to this effect, which is that um, Trevor Marriott, in his um, in his first first book on the case. Uh, presented the idea that, uh, in his view, it was possible that researchers and, indeed, the people looking and investigating the case at the time had actually overlooked the possible explanation for the absence of um, Annie Chapman's uterus, for example, which the explanation he was kind of propagating was that uh, it had been removed at the mortuary after the body had been taken out of the backyard of 29 Hanby Street, taken to the mortuary and before post-mortem. And that that had been done by uh, someone with access to the mortuary for the purpose of selling those organs later on the black market because they were valuable. That's that's what um, that's basically Trevor Marriott's uh, conclusion. He he also concludes that the removal of Annie Chapman's organs did show indications of um, anatom- anatomical or surgical knowledge. Um, so it would be interesting to hear what Dr. Mark has to say about that. Um, so, like I said, in terms of, I'm just going off the um, transcripts and things. Um, I couldn't see any specifics in terms of references to it. But, I mean, in terms of removing a uterus, yes, that's a fairly specific thing to target. And you, you'd, you'd have to have a degree of knowledge about what you were looking for. I mean, again, without seeing the state of the actual organ after it was removed which would be a, a kind of good indicator of you know how much skill had been done because anyone can it's easy to slice and dice but in terms of actually skillfully removing and leaving the organ you know intact mm. that's a different matter though it's very very difficult to pass judgment but it did like said, remove uh, part of the bladder would was uh, also taken away yeah. With the uterus, I think I'm right in saying. Um, so does that... That's the closest we're going to get to seeing the state of the organ itself. Uh, not mm. that I'd want to, particularly after 127 years. But d- does that suggest anything to you, Mark? I mean, uh, Dr Mark, uh, w- w- is taking away part of the bladder a, a common side effect of removing a uterus? Or does that suggest a, a bit more slice and dice to you? Well, again, in, in, in modern surgery... Generally, you'll have a, you know, if you're doing a cesarean section, for example, which I know is a, a completely different procedure, you, you often catheterize the woman so the, the bladder is as small as possible so that it's not going to get in the way of performing this procedure. So you're not going to cause any accidental damage to the bladder. So obviously, you know, the bladder sits in close proximity to the uterus itself. So again, if it was a case of it being rushed as a procedure, then it could have easily been accidentally damaged. But then you'd just expect, you know, a kind of incision-type wound to to the bladder rather than a chunk of it necessarily being missing. So, again, very, very difficult to say. But the specifics of having targeted a uterus, personally, I'd still 
lean to having some kind of I mean, some kind of anatomical knowledge. I think we get into the question then of whether we believe that specific organs were targeted. I was going to say, uh, yeah. Or of an opportunistic smash and grab. When we look, yeah. well, nobody else had, I mean, Polly Nichols, you know, at, at, uh, Stride, her uterus, obviously nothing would happen to her. Catherine Eddowes' uterus was ob- obliterated, I believe, like sliced and diced, cut through. Um, so was he really targeting the uterus or was he just cutting open the abdomen, reaching in and grabbing whatever he could get? Targeting, if, if I thought he was actually targeting the uterus, then to me that would have to be gone in every case and especially when you look at Catherine Eddowes where he, he took her intestines and threw them over her you know or like threw them about and took her kidney and and obliterated her womb with his knife cut, like he really cut the womb badly or something like he took part of it but it didn't yeah, he took go part all. of it yeah I think so well, it, was, it was basically the the entire body of the womb but above the cervix that's that's the difference yeah. I mean uh, he, he liberated the bulbous part. There is a technical term for it. Is it, is it the fundus? I can't remember. Um, so he took that uh, away in the case of, of Catherine Eddowes. In the case of Anthony Chapman, uh, he managed to divide um, the, the vagina below the cervix and remove the, the uterus more or less intact together with its appendages, uh, which I take to mean the fallopian tubes. Mm. Targeting is a is a specific word that I don't think we see throughout the case. I, th- I think the, the, the question is: if you were to cut a woman open, pull out the intestines, would the uterus be right in front of you there? No, no. Um, this is this is this is something which I think which Trevor Marriott's um, one of Trevor Marriott's experts says in his statement, which Trevor Marriott publishes. There would have been no need for the killer to remove the intestines to facilitate the removal of the uterus. So actually, this was not a, this was not planning necessarily. This is not purposeful. I have to get this out of the way in order to access that, um, according to Trevor Marriott's expert. This was it, this makes me wonder whether there's actually very little anatomical knowledge going on here. Um, whether he may, maybe I speculate, but maybe he didn't really know what he was looking for. This was a purpose of kind of rummaging. I guess in inside the abdomen, um, maybe I, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's very much down to intent. There's a, there's a lot of quotes from the various doctors at the time saying that uh, you know if I was to perform this as a surgical procedure, it would take me upwards of an hour. But that's assuming that that's specifically what you're targeting and what you're going after. If, um, as you just said, there it's someone rummaging around and grabbing the first thing that they find or something that comes to hand. There's nothing to suggest that you need a particular degree of anatomical knowledge. It's just putting your hands in there, getting them dirty and yanking something out. Yeah, but presumably the doctors as well are trying to be careful and not inflict further damage, whereas someone who is, uh, you know, removing organs from someone <coughs> they just murdered isn't going to care about slicing through the bladder, for example. You know, it's just yeah, exactly. and grab. I think that quote came from uh, Dr. Uh, Baxter Phillips himself. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and clearly, he he was talking about a surgical procedure as opposed to a post mortem or autopsy procedure, uh, where the emphasis would be on preserving the patient's life (laughs) rather than causing any collateral damage and endangering their life even further. Um, In the case of Annie Chapman, I think it's significant that the uh, collateral damage that was inflicted extended far further than uh, the 
the anterior two thirds of the bladder, or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> because in uh, it, it's, it's interesting to note that um, the um, the coroner. Um, Win Baxter instructed the pressmen or advised the pressmen um, not to detail too much of um, Dr. Phillips's testimony uh, because it was felt that it was quite distasteful and so forth. Um, and in, in fact, Dr. Phillips protested at having to give away so much detail, but uh, but the coroner insisted on it. Um, then went on to caution the pressmen not to report the gory details. However, some of the newspapers did. Um, so the Echo and I think the Daily News actually gives us a bit give, give us a bit more detail about the damage that uh, Ernie Chapman's killer caused um, beyond the the, the the removal of the, the the clean removal, if I can put it that way, of the uterus and two thirds of the bladder. Um, it's also um, apparent from the other newspaper reports that uh, the killer severed through uh, Ernie Chapman's colon as well. Uh, presumably uh, as a result of rummaging around in her lower abdomen to try to liberate the uterus. And indeed, the means by which the killer accessed uh, Annie Chapman's uh, abdomen was far cruder than we see uh, in, in, in later examples during the case. Uh, certainly the, the next um, evisceration murder, which was, which was Catherine Eddowes, who had a relatively neat wound. Uh, in contrast, Annie Chapman was basically excavated. Uh, her abdomen was 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 cut into three flaps, and the flaps removed um, in order to afford access to to the lower abdomen, which is an incredibly messy way of going about it. When you consider that in the next evisceration murder, he was practically operating a, a, a microsurgery method to extract Catherine Eddowes's uh, uterus. Um, that doesn't show any consistency to me. It doesn't show that this guy was applying any, I'm assuming it was a man, that he was applying any method or any forethought in the way that he gained access to these organs in the first place. So in your opinion, Gareth, the, um, in the case of Catherine Eddowes, that's the only victim where we have uh, pretty uh, excellent uh, photographic evidence of how the knife wound was made on her abdomen. And as you guys know, and I'll, I'll bring up Wynn Weston Davies, um, in his opinion, the way that the knife circumnavigated the navel on a specific side of her chest mimicked what surgeons are trained to do um, in school. So we don't we don't have photographs of of the way uh, Annie Chapman's abdomen was cut. So rather than talking necessarily about what was taken and, and whether it came with a piece of the bladder or you know how you know how the organ uh, could be accessed and removed, what is your guys' opinion on just how the cut itself is made? as a point to whether or not surgical knowledge may have been present in the murderer. I, I kind of get the impression that what Gareth is saying is that, you know, because Annie Chapman's uh, wounds seem to be so slipshod and Catherine Eddowes was a little bit more of an exact cut, that that's just um, evidence to you, Gareth, that how he made his cuts were completely random, kind of, and 
And if it appeared to have surgical skill in the case of Eddowes, that was just kind of by mistake. Yeah, I'd go along with that. Except, you know, if, if we adopt the um, self-taught, you know, um, uh, like book-learning paradigm, that maybe he thought um, in the in the month, I guess, between the or the few weeks between the death of Annie Chapman and and um, uh, Catherine Eddowes, that he actually went away and and learned something, you know, from his experience and and, and um, try to improve his technique in the in the intervening weeks. That's conceivable because if if, if he knew what he was doing um, with avoiding the the navel in the case of Catherine Eddowes, then why didn't he apply the same technique to Annie Chapman? Why why is she scooped open like a like a meat pie, to put it crudely, uh, whereas Catherine Eddowes is open like a zipper? It doesn't make any sense to me, and there's no way he could, he could have completed a degree in surgery in four weeks uh, between Annie Chapman's murder and Catherine Eddowes' murder. So clearly, there's some opportunism going on here. There's possibly some self-learning, maybe some book learning. Um, but no, he doesn't bring any skill to the party to begin with. I think he's learning as he's going as he's going along. I, I buy that too. Yeah, I, I think he's learning and evolving as he's uh, progressing through the series. It's interesting because I don't. Actually, I think my understanding of what Trevor Marriott says in his books is that he never doubts that the, the actual cuts were made by the same person. I mean, it is difficult sometimes to pin down exactly what. Trevor Marriott thinks about whether there was one killer or more than one killer. He he assumes, though, he makes the assumption that once a, a body had arrived at a mortuary with a, a a large fissure in the abdomen, which you could reach into and um, remove organs through, that someone, it should be pointed out, as many, I think, listeners will probably know as well, Annie Chapman and Catherine Eddowes did not go to the same mortuary. They went to two different mortuaries. Mm. So he assumes that once you get the once the opportunity is presented, these bodies arrive with that large fissure in the abdomen. Two presumably separate people working at different mortuaries both felt opportunistically, I could actually get something out of this and sell it on the black market. I have something valuable here which I could now sell. And it would be difficult for the police to uh, detect what I'd done because they would not know what had been removed through that fissure by the killer. Um, so there's a few assumptions going on there, which for me don't necessarily fit together particularly well. Um, and of course, the question then remains, how many other times in Victorian London did this happen, that organs were removed from bodies which arrived at mortuaries um, by mortuary attendants or other people with access to the bodies um, for sale on the black market? And I think the answer... Probably a zero. Well, Mark, I believe I've had this conversation with Neil Bell, and maybe, um, and I may be wrong. So please, if if Neil Bell has never said this, obviously this is my error, not his. But he said something like the when he was researching the police procedures and whatnot for his book that. I believe it was Catherine Eddowes for sure that the the mortuary for you know was actually locked because of issues like this. I mean, it, it it demands further research, and I I haven't I don't have the knowledge to be able to I, d- I don't know whether Neil said that in the past. Um, I don't think I've had that conversation with him. It would require further research to find out whether the theft of organs from dead bodies was a real problem, which was being faced by mortuary keepers at the time. I honestly don't know the answer to that question. They might well have had other problems, but that might not have been one one which was 
uh, a priority, perhaps. Mm. I mean, there is that thing, you do get that other thing in Victorian society where, even in the Ripper case, people are very keen to go and see the bodies and there's a great deal of public enthusiasm. And, and, well, I guess it takes a certain type of person, but people who wish to go to mortuary to see the body, in theory, maybe they can identify it, but you know, in some cases they don't manage to identify it. There is a bit of um, prurience, right? public prurience. Maybe there was a thing about keeping bodies securely so as to avoid people who who want you know who were going to who were really just sort of gratifying their own gory desires by turning up to see these things yeah. um so i can maybe go that far there's there's obviously something psychological about that for those people who wish to do it um but whether there was really an active black market for organs to medical schools whether people would take that risk of trying to do it you know with high-profile murders in mortuaries when the body wasn't cold yet. You know, I mean, a lot of that doesn't really add up to me. Yeah, and it was more that was the reason why the the public interest and the purience, which was why it was done, and I believe it was the Catherine Eddowes instance. The prurience bit, that that certainly goes beyond the boundaries of the case. That goes into other cases. You see that happening in other cases. The actual, as I say, the theft of organs, I really don't have... I have never seen anything which would lead me to believe there was a real problem with the theft of organs from bodies. Mm, I think I think Trevor Marriott sometimes he likes to be contrary for the sake of being contrary. I mean, uh, a week or two back, he was trying to say that he didn't think the facial wounds on Catherine Edwards were made at the crime scene, and they were also made at the mortuary. Um, I think this is on the Bruce Robinson uh, thread. So yeah, I, I think he just likes challenging the status quo just for the sake of challenging it um, rather than because he genuinely believes it. Yeah, and I think that takes us back to the um, you know, so-called Baxter's theory of the American who wanted to obtain organs for, as Trevor points out, disposal through a, through a subscription magazine or something. You know? I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know whether there's, there's a lot to tell me that that has a factual basis either. It seems to be much more likely, um, with respect to the you know, research which Trevor's done and the number of times he's written about it, it seems to be much more likely that the organs were removed in situ by the, by the murderer. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think regarding the magazine article that um, there was a big hoo-ha over about the person wanting to obtain samples for the magazine, Dr. Phillips himself said, um, again, this is from the press rather than from any notes, but I believe he said the whole reason for the operation uh, was, he believed, was to enable the perpetrator to obtain possession of what he took. So I don't know if that added any fuel to that fire. People who like tumble tea say it, it was there to advance his collection of uteri. <laughs> right, and I think there's been a theory floated around um, uh, regarding tumble tea that maybe um, he had either mortuary attendants or accomplices of some kind in his employ to obtain the uh, uteruses for his collection. Yeah, and of course, John Williams comes up with a different explanation. Uh, no, uh, Tony Williams. Um, about John Williams wanting to obtain uh, uteri for research purposes in order to resolve his wife's infertility problems. Um, so I think uh, these things are kind of built on foundations of sand, really, aren't they? They are, and largely, I think, um, the, the foundations were laid by Coroner Wynne Baxter himself, because I think yeah. he was the yeah. origin of this, uh, or the originator of this theory. 
And there are there are one or two hairbrained things that come out of the Ripper case that can be that can trace their ancestry back pretty clearly to Coroner Wynn Baxter. <coughs> and this is one of them. Uh, I think about doesn't he even say in his summing up uh, when he mentions this theory, Wynn Baxter, he says, Of course I immediately told the police about this, but they didn't seem very interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of that old goon show where, where Neddy Siegel goes to the the, uh, the government with ideas for a rocket to land on the, on the moon. That's a new, and he's, he's built this rocket out of uh, old sausage machine parts, uh, and he comes back having had his idea rejected. And his 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 uh, assistant says, uh, "What happened, Professor Siegel?" And he said, "After five minutes, they they threw me out and said I was mad." To which his his accomplice answered, "Well, it didn't take them long to find out, did it?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there are a few of these theories of of, of Baxter's that, that, on you know, cursory examination, must have seemed absurd even to people at the time. I mean, we can look closer at Trevor Marriott's um, experiments with um, people's actual body parts, which uh, the results of which he publishes in his book. But it's probably better done during Catherine Eddowes. So. so Maybe once we get out of Chapman and through Stride, we'll talk a bit further about Trevor then. I think that sounds like a good idea. With, uh, with Elizabeth Stride then moving on, uh, obviously the first of the two murders on the night of the 30th of September, the so-called double event murders. Um, Elizabeth Stride found in Duffield's Yard about 1am that morning uh, by the famously difficult to pin down the sound of his name, Mr Dimschutz. The theory, as I'm just rehashing this for the sake of the uh, sake of the listeners and the sake of Dr. Mark, if he's still with us, uh, the theory for the lack of any mutilations with Elizabeth Stride is generally that the killer was disturbed by the arrival of Mr. Deemschutz and his pony, and that then ex- uh, explains for some people the extra ferocity that they see in the mutilations of Catherine Eddowes, who was perhaps the completion uh, of, of the night's plan or of a task that the killer felt he needed to... Uh, he hadn't had a uh, desire, he hadn't had the chance to sate in uh, Burner Street with Elizabeth Stride. So there's not really much from a surgical knowledge point of view to discuss with Elizabeth Stride. Uh, if anyone wants to speak briefly on the issue of whether uh, the same knife was used in the other murders as not because um, that's obviously something that comes up. And the other issue with Elizabeth Stride, because it has implications on the acceptance of her as a ripper victim on the proviso that the killer was interrupted, because if you don't have the interruption, I think it becomes quite difficult to explain why there were no mutilations if it was the same killer, albeit it would be quite a coincidence to have another murder three-quarters of an hour later if it wasn't. Um, and with the time, so time of death, I mean, I know we briefly mentioned that time of death come, becomes somewhat skewed in the Chapman case even, but with Elizabeth Stride, it, it gets very interesting, really, doesn't it? And there's this issue of her blood still flowing uh, or not, perhaps, uh, when the uh, when uh, the various medics and policemen arrive and I've got the uh, inquest report here for Elizabeth Stride I'm just going to see which newspaper I've taken this one from so this is from the Daily Telegraph so say these are the uh, sections as chosen on the casebook website and I've got Baxter Phillips being asked 
We have a question from the coroner. Did you examine the blood at Burner Street carefully as to its direction and so forth? The blood near to the neck and a few inches, this is in answer, to the left side was well clotted and it had run down the waterway to within a few inches of the side entrance to the clubhouse. Um, there's also a slightly bizarre diversion about whether she'd ever been bitten by an adder or not, which I've never <laughs> quite understood where that comes from. Uh, that's <laughs> from uh, Mary, Mal- Mary Malcolm, is it? Um, the woman who claimed to be her sister. Yes. Uh, she, ah, yes. She, yes. Yeah, she claimed that uh, she had an adder bite, which was an identifiable mark, and uh, obviously she was making it up as she went along. Is it another, <laughs> another victim of Jack the Viper? <laughs> <laughs> um, That's I'm right, too... because isn't it Stride who, it's the Stride Inquest, isn't it, where they open it on an unnamed woman? But I yeah. think there's a, a juror that actually objects at the beginning and says, we all know that you've decided this body is Elizabeth Stride, why aren't we calling this victim Elizabeth Stride? And I think it's Mary Malcolm that gets involved then, isn't it? Because the coroner says, well, actually, there are other suggestions that that identification might be wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. So Elizabeth Stride, obviously, if we're accepting the interruption theory, we're talking about her being murdered very close within minutes to the arrival of Louis Deemschutz at, for argument's sake, let's set it, um, straight at, uh, for or 1am for our purposes so we're talking a minute or two before because obviously the killer hasn't had time to begin doing anything else how does anyone Gareth or, or Mark or, or anyone want to give us a quick rundown of how the medical evidence plays because the earliest or the closest sightings we have of Elizabeth Stride to her murder would suggest it's possible from that perspective um, that she may have had her throat cut at quarter to one, ten to one. That's that's my reading of the of the witness statements anyway. But is there anything in the medical testimony that definitively tells us she must have been uh, her throat must have been cut at one, two, uh, one or two minutes to one? Because I find this reference to the fact that the blood from her neck had already clotted to be a curious one if she had literally, if the deed had literally just been done. How long does blood take to clot? It can clot within minutes. If you're taking blood samples in a syringe and you're needling syringing it out and then decanting it into the various different containers, if it, you know, if you're going five, ten minutes, then sometimes the blood can clot and even sometimes it can clot as it's coming out, depending how much kind of trauma has been to the vessels and how quickly the blood's flowing. Wasn't it also raining that night as well? Mark or Gareth might be able to... Uh... Yes, it was. It was. Yeah, so, yeah. so that, it, was, it was also raining uh, on the other, with the other murder where the issue of clotting blood comes up, which was Alice McKenzie, wasn't it? Because uh, mm. supposedly, I think it's when Inspector Arnold turns up, and I think nine, <laughs> I've got, a, got it up here on the case website, nine minutes past one, uh, supposedly the blood was still flowing, and then by the time that uh, the doctor... I can't remember, was it, uh, probably would have been Baxter Phillips again, wouldn't it, um, arrived, I think, three minutes later, it had begun to clot. So, so yeah, that fits with what, what oh, indeed, was I mean, saying, the, doesn't it? The, the thing to realise is if you've, if you've got a stream of rainwater, um, then I mean, clearly when, when blood clots, it doesn't all clot like instantly. It's not like a, um, um, a, a change of phase, let's say, when water turns into ice. Um, um, so you've, you've still got... 
um, red liquid that can be carried by a stream of water into you know down a gutter or whatever that can give the impression to a layman of of it being flowing blood. So you know the the, the presence of uh, of rainwater um, giving the illusion of a an ongoing stream of blood may be significant in in, in both those cases in the Mackenzie case and the Stride case. I, mean, I presume as well. Um... Dr. Mark will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but if you're if you have a severed artery and um, blood is flowing from it, when the blood pressure still remains relatively high, that will inhibit clotting around the wound because the blood is moving past at a relatively high pressure. But of course, as pressure drops, I guess it would be more possible for platelets to establish themselves around the wound and clot. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, one of the things if you're thinking that someone's got something like. Um an abdominal aortic aneurysm, you try and keep that blood pressure up, but you don't want to go too high because then the blood pressure then blows off any kind of clots that might have formed yeah. to try and stop that. So, yeah, I suppose that would be a fair establishment to me. There are also individual differences in speed of blood clotting depending on um, alcohol or diet or anything like that. Or... Yeah, I mean, alcohol um, causes blood to clot more slowly, so people are more likely to bleed. Um, it, it, they could have had some kind of coagulopathy in terms of their liver was producing abnormal ratios of their coagulation factors, then that could could have caused her to, to bleed abnormally. But again, that's kind of just throwing out random medical knowledge. Is 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 the the speed of blood clotting used today to determine time of death in recent? Um... <sighs> I couldn't tell you. Okay. So, should we move on from Burner Street then and uh, make our... Uh, One more... uh, As a quick aside on the uh, stride, and this uh, might have... This has no bearing on the surgical skill of the perpetrator, but we should just point out to our listeners who don't know that it is at the stride killing where we get the iconic image of Jack the Ripper carrying a Gladstone Hmm. bag which has been reproduced, you know, um, the gentleman who is carrying the cartons of cigarettes um, in the leather bag who was questioned after the Stride murder iconically leads us to the image of Jack the Ripper as this, if not a surgeon, then at least carrying surgical knives in the uh, leather bag. So just wanted to throw that one out there. I'd also like to point out something bizarre. I just noticed in the inquest testimony when uh, Win Baxter asks if uh, the the throat cut was self inflicted. Um, uh, you know, you, th- you think they'd have described the knife next to her in the hand if it had, but uh, <laughs> just throws that out there. Just uh, I think the scraper. Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, falling on a horse scraper, I believe, has been um, yeah. <laughs> posited as a cause of death. What's a horse scraper? It's a boot scraper, really, isn't it? Yeah, oh. so the sort of thing okay. you get outside a church or something, so you can clean your boots on it. A uh, boot scraper. But if you fell upon it and didn't put your hands out to stop yourself, and it corresponded precisely with where your throat was, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> and you, 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 if you haven't put your hands out to save yourself because you're trying to keep hold of your cashews, presumably. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and your stalk of grapes. And just talk of grapes. Whether there was a boot scraper there or not, I really don't know. Maybe yeah, you would think you would think that'd be the first question, really, wouldn't you? Would be uh, not. Would it be? Would it? Would it be possible to do it by falling on a boot scraper? If there's not a boot scraper there, <laughs> is there a boot scraper there? Should perhaps be question one. Yeah. 
He obviously carried a boot scrape around in his Gladstone bag. That's true, true. This is the weirdest murder kit ever. Matchboxes and a boot scrape. <laughs> Onto Mitre Square. Onto Mitre Square. Gareth, uh, you've done a lot of uh, work over the years on the, the Mitre Square murder. Some uh, One particular article I'm thinking of with some wonderfully disturbing <laughs> illustrations. Uh, do you fancy talking us through this one? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> um, let's keep it as brief as possible. I mean, there's so much detail available here through um, through Dr. Gordon Brown's um, notes uh, uh, about the autopsy that, um, you know, I was able to plagiarise an entire article out of it. There you go. Um, <laughs> just padded it out with nouns of my own. Um, but in, in essence, what happened at, at Mitre Square, so this is the second half of the double event, having dispatched uh, Elizabeth Stride, possibly with a, with a matchbox and a, and a boot scraper. Um, <clears throat> the, the masked villain um, made good his escape. And less than an hour later, um, was seducing another woman uh, at the entrance of a passageway that led into a very small square called Mitre Square, which is still there in London, although it's changed a lot since then. And that basically this square was patrolled by two police officers, uh, one entering through uh, whose beat came up, up to the end of Church Passage at the north of the square, I think it's the north or the east actually, um, and uh, the uh, the southwestern entrance, uh, Mitre Street, patrolled by yet another policeman. Uh, and this very small square in between, which is, I don't know, less than half the size of a football field, um, uh, American or, or, or British, uh, for that matter. Um, so a very small space um, in an echoey square where uh, if you take the timings of the, 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 the two constables' beats together, uh, the murder itself must have taken between four or five minutes at most uh, from the sighting of Catherine Eddowes outside the square to the subsequent discovery of her body. And when her body was discovered by a police officer entering uh, through Mitre Street, um, the wounds were almost as severe as those uh, endured by Annie Chapman about a month uh, or four weeks earlier. Uh, in that, Catherine Eddowes had been opened from her sternum uh, down to her pelvis. Uh, as I said, or uh, as I alluded to earlier, this was a single wound, relatively clean, that circumvented the navel and then uh, jagged to the right down to her, her, her pubic bone. The abdomen was opened. Uh, her intestines, uh, her small intestines, uh, I should say, uh, were removed and, and put over her right shoulder. A length of large intestine, some uh, 12 inches in, in length, was removed from her left-hand side and lifted out, apparently, and laid on the pavement alongside her. Um, <coughs> her uterus... Uh, was was cut out. As I say, this wasn't as clean as the Annie Chapman uh, murder in, in that the killer removed the uterus above the cervix. There's no mention of attachments, I don't think, in, in, in Dr. Brown's report, so per but perhaps most of the fallopian tubes didn't uh, or remained in the body. Uh, don't know about that. It's not recorded. But also, uh, intriguingly, uh, Eddowes's left kidney uh, was also removed from the scene um, subsequent to that, or perhaps beforehand, uh, I think beforehand, uh, Catherine Edwards's face was uh, was deeply mutilated. The tip of her nose was cut off. The lobe of her right ear, I, I believe, was cut off. And there were savage lacerations uh, to the right side, primarily, of her face, although there were some wounds on the left. So her face was mutilated. 
she was opened, as I said earlier, like a zipper, um, and her uterus and kidney were removed from the scene. And that's the, the Eddowes murder. Dr. Mark, any uh, any thoughts when you were reading, either listening to Gareth's uh, summary there or when you were reading through those reports? I mean, the thing that spoke most to me was the fact that, um, which is also referenced in the report, is that the kidney is the kidneys are retroperitoneal structures, so if you're having a quick cursory glance, you you know it'd be quite easy to miss them. Um, I mean, obviously you've got kind of telltale signs in terms of um, the ureters, which will go from you know your bladder back through the peritoneum into like to the kidneys where they originate. Um, but it's something that would be easily overlooked either by someone who didn't have any knowledge or experience um, or someone who was working, you know, if it was someone who was just all experimenting slowly, you know, exploring and things, yes, you know, that was something that could have been um, found with a little bit of time. But working at a a short time scale, I think that would have been something that you'd specifically be, you know, have knowledge of and know where to look for them. We we also have the question of light as well, and it was, it was very dark in that square, so uh, the killer would have had minimal light to work with. So again, I'd, just... I'd say that leans more towards having knowledge of the subject matter. Yeah, um, when I when I did um, I did a show this week, Murders and Mystery of Jack the Ripper, and we had a, an element of murder mystery as part of it. So we had the audience step up and give their theories at the end, and we had um, a gentleman step up who's a retired uh, biology teacher who has a PhD in biology, and uh, his opinion was that uh, the kidney is extremely difficult to find. So he he felt that uh, there was definitely anatomical or surgical knowledge displayed um, there. Which way, Mark, I, I, Dr. Mark, I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but I, I'm, I'm asking you to get you to say it. Uh, <laughs> which, if you did have some degree of anatomical slash and or surgical knowledge and you were going after the kidney, now, I grant you may not know whether the way we do things today has changed since Victorian times, uh, but certainly today... I'm right in saying that's not the way in you would go to get to kidney, am I? For, for like, a nephrectomy? Hmm. Um, no, I, like I said, I'm not a urologist, um, but from what I remember, you'd use a more lateral approach. Yeah, in, in, indeed. I mean, what, what he's done is, he's, he, as I say, it's, it's tandem to keyhole surgery, if you like. If you want to remove a kidney, he's gone right down the middle. You could argue that, uh, in, the, in the case of Annie Chapman, where, as I say... The killer excavated three flaps of abdominal flesh uh, from her side. Um, in fact, Annie Chapman's right kidney uh, would have been more accessible than Catherine Eddowes's left, given the the the, the sort of incision he chose to to open um, her abdomen. Uh, as it, it doesn't. It, go, on, go on, Ali. To me, I mean, I, I apologize in advance. This is going to sound very, very disgusting and sort of cavalier, <laughs> but. To me, when I picture Catherine Eddowes and the kidney removal, I genuinely see like somebody just going in and kind of, again, I apologize for the the lack of taste, but like going wee and just kind of like pulling stuff out left and right. And then at the end, he's left with the back of the body stuff, which is, you know, the kidney. Because, I mean, she was... I don't. I don't even like you know. Just like someone going in and tossing stuff out. Do you understand? Like the like just pulling stuff out left and right kind of thing. 
and, and then the kidney would be kind of left there and he grabs that and goes. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't see it as targeting because for everything that he did, he took the wrong approach. Uh, he took the uterus, but damaged the second uterus. He left, uh, uh, he left Mary's uterus. He didn't take hers. He took the heart. You know, it's just, I really just feel like it's a kid with a grab bag of goodies just kind of going in and pulling stuff out until he gets to something that looks cool or interesting or it's, he's done. Except for the, 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 the kidney wouldn't just be hanging there. It's under like a layer of uh, fat, isn't it? So it wouldn't be that visible, would it? Well, ah, visibility is interesting because when you think about it, this, this murder was completed in very dim lighting. So he's yeah. relying on his, on, on, he's not relying too much on his on his uh, visual sense. Uh, although it has to be said, it's not quite as pitch black in Mitre Square as some people have made out. Yeah. Uh, in fact, some of the doctors themselves attested to the fact that there was sufficient light there just about to carry out the procedures. That said, um, he, I don't think he's, he's looking into the abdomen. Uh, I think he's rummaging around, as, as, uh, as Ali suggests. Um, if, if, if the kidney's under like a layer of subcutaneous, subcutaneous fat, is that what it's called? It's called the retroperitoneum. Would, how, how, how much would you be able to feel it if you're rummaging about? Because, you know. Again, I can't say I can speak from experience from having tried it. Um, <laughs> <I'm> not that. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but it's, it's a fairly kind of fibrous. Um, so again... I'd say it's tricky, but I'd go with how it, kind of knowing that it was there and knowing that you'd have to cut through it to get through to the kidneys themselves. Could You're not be... just going to put your hands in and think... Ooh, there's a, a kidney, <laughs> I'm going to grab it's, that. Exactly, think, oh, yeah. there, there, there's a squishy thing, I'll have that squishy thing. Right, and he, didn't and he only knew what organ he had removed when he read about it in the papers, kind of thing. <laughs> Oh, is that what I grabbed? Yes, that's what it is. Unless, unless, of course, he is being self-teaching himself. And after, you know, having a rummage about taking the uterus, he thought, oh, what else could I take? I know I'll get the kidney. That sounds like a bit of a challenge, which might explain why he went, you know, in the wrong way as well. Uh, Maybe he thought, you know, I I like steak and kidney pie. So, uh, yeah, I think... Sorry, I, I, I don't know how easy it would be to actually just grab hold of a kidney through the... Retroperitoneum as well. Whether you'd have to actually cut through the retroperitoneum to actually get a decent. It was cut. It, it was cut through, and it was taken out through the cut peritoneum. Yes, I mean the the, the organs uh, or the tissue surrounding the peritoneum, uh, where the peritoneum was cut, as Ali said, were uh, damaged. Um, I guess by by the tip of a knife. So you, you you had some incisions in 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 the lobes of the liver, in the spleen. Um, and as I said, the 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 left uh, large intestine, possibly the descending colon, uh, on 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 the left side, which was subsequently cut out. So the 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 tissues or the organs surrounding the left kidney uh, suffered some collateral damage. Uh, it, it seems as he cut through the peritoneum and 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 lifted lifted the kidney out. I think the other thing uh, to consider with Catherine Edwards is she wasn't actually a particularly big woman. So if he was just sticking his hands in there and pulling something out, presumably you wouldn't have a great deal of space to mess around in. I know that sounds very kind of morbid and horrible, but it's not as if he'd be rummaging around in a huge great trunk or something. She was quite a small woman, so yeah, that would be quite easy to come across. 
Trevor Marriott, uh, going back to Mr. Marriott again, his autopsy um, that he, you know, used to demonstrate how difficult it was to get the kidney, the pictures are of an overweight man. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's discussing removing the kidney from, uh, you know, a potentially undernourished woman. So I have a question, and I don't know if anyone knows the answer to it. But uh, as far as this uh, talking about what the uh, perpetrator might have learned through books and, or um, training or whatsoever, does anyone know through schooling in the Victorian times what an individual may have been taught about anatomy just in school? I mean, serial killers, if we go by what's, what, what we've learned about serial killers, they, they, they tend to start at a fairly young age, like in their 20s or something like that. So I'm wondering if, if, um, if different strata of primary school education in the Victorian times would have taught um, school-aged kids different levels of, of anatomy or, or if teaching anatomy um, in the Victorian age didn't come around until they went to university or something like that. Does anyone know? Could have anyone of a certain social background picked up on the basics of human anatomy just by attending school? Well, I mean, could Jack the Ripper be nothing more than somebody who got a, 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 their hands on a copy of Grey's Anatomy and was working his way through the, the pages, you know? Well, mean, or that, yeah. That, that exists, you know, did, it, did he get that? Grey's Anatomy, I think, was published 40, 30, 30-something 30 years before uh, the killing. So there right. were anatomical uh, textbooks, how likely it is somebody in the middle of Whitechapel got his hands on them. I mean, well, it, it it went beyond beyond that. I, I don't think the standard uh, education would have given your average person much more than the you know the three R's: reading, writing, and um, rhetoric. Um, sorry, uh, arithmetic. Um, so, so you know, certainly my, my my own parents' experience. You know, they. Um, they probably didn't learn much in the way of of, of what you call um, basic level biology. Uh, on much beyond basic level biology when they were in school. I think it was probably even less so uh, in, in, Victor- in Victorian London or amongst the Victorian working classes. But what you did have, of course, um, apart from, as Ali says, you know, the, 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 some of the great textbooks of, 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 of medicine were, were, had started to be published in, in the Victorian age, which was a great age of scientific discovery. Um, you also had things like public exhibitions. It started off with the great exhibition, in 1851 or whatever it was, uh, which sort of bequeathed to London, especially uh, a number of educational institutes that were there to uh, support the education of the poor. Um, and certainly, you know, one of the popular attractions in, in London were were um, anatomical waxwork uh, museums, which were open to the public uh, and had been since since the late 18th century. You had, uh, if you read Henry Mayhew's books, you'll find tales of um, which describe the London poor of the Victorian age. Uh, you, you'll find on, on street sort of uh, exhibitions uh, showing people views through microscopes and so on. So there, there were plenty of ways by which uh, an ordinary member of the public could, if they wanted to, acquaint themselves with the finer points or the coarser points of anatomy. Were, were uh, public dissections still um not sure. That's, that's one thing that crossed my mind, um, John. But um, 
it's it's possible, and you know, it's arguably possible for someone to slip into the back of a lecture theatre mm. uh, and witness this stuff going on. At my own university, that happened, for example, where uh, a very capable um, Asian girl, as it turns out, uh, attended uh, the first year of of of, of um, a bachelor in, in medicine uh, degree, uh, preclinical uh, first year student who subsequently found not to have been enrolled at the university at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I, was thinking, I was just thinking, it would be quite easy for me, you know, to have uh, witnessed my degree, you know, without uh, actually having enrolled in the university because the lectures were so large. So, uh... <laughs> right, and there's been reports that uh, Crippen attended um, several um, anatomy classes while in London without being enrolled um, in in any kind of school, so so it, it, I believe it did occur. Yeah, so th- there's plenty of opportunity there, John, to answer your, your original question. Um, right. Maybe not to get a formal, uh, if you like, school education in a, in anatomy, but the avenues were certainly there for someone to self educate themselves. The reason behind my question, I guess, was is that there's this suggestion wrongly as it turns out but you know there's there it's kind of goes along with the myth of jack the ripper that if the ripper did have surgical knowledge then he must have been amongst the upper crust um where uh just having uh some knowledge of anatomy would um stretch across all uh, uh, social classes. Uh, the ability to learn um, this information would have been, as we just discussed, been possible for anyone of any class to uh, acquire, which... Um, so having surgical knowledge wouldn't um, necessarily point to a, a middle-class killer or an upper-class killer, is what I was kind of... I'm not so sure how accessible knowledge... An education, even sort of self-guided education, would have been to the the, the proper working classes at the time. I'd, I'd be a little bit—I don't know if anyone else agrees or disagrees with me on this—but I'd be a little bit cautious about saying that, Jonathan, because I think if you're talking about getting your hands on expensive textbooks and being able to read them and understand the Latin terms, etc., in them, I, I've I'm, I'm not so sure that your average person on the street did have that option as available to them as, as we would imagine it would be now. Right, but um, on the other hand, if, if there was, for instance, uh, an anatomy doll uh, on exhibit in a curiosity shop on Whitechapel Road or, you know, posters um, even um, on display anywhere... Um, that showed the location of the organs of the human body, then that would open up um, the rudimentary knowledge that the Ripper might have had to have, you know, to to that, being a working a, class that, individual. That's oh, a fair it, point. It, it, indeed, you know, it's, it's for reasons like that that uh, you know the Luftwaffe didn't need um, an A to Z of London in order to bomb St Paul's Cathedral. You just need to know roughly where it is and uh, roughly how many um, blows it's going to take to to hit your target. Um, so yeah, I mean, as, as I think John Jonathan uh, Mengis was getting into there, um, it's just a case of knowing where your enemy is, or in this case, knowing where your kidney is, rather than the finer points of navigating to that kidney. Uh, mm. And I think that's a, I think that's a valid point. I'd agree with John there. Okay, if anyone's got any thoughts on uh, 
surgical knowledge regards the death <laughs> of, uh, of Mary Kelly, although I'd argue uh, the unfortunate woman's body in that case was in, in such a mess that it's difficult to draw any particular conclusions. I'm, I'm not sure what surgical knowledge we could say is displayed by Mary Kelly. It, it, it's more knowledge of, you know, filleting rather than surgery. Yeah, butchery, isn't it? Yeah. Well, very, very crude butchery at that. Yeah. And again, there's, there's, there's certainly a theme of, if you like, experimentation going on there. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah. With, within the confines of the Kelly murder itself, I think he's trying different things out. Um, you can see that uh, in the way that he denudes the flesh on the on, on, on the breastbone, or actually on the on, on the ribs, then tries to cut holes uh, in, in the intercostal muscle between the ribs before apparently giving up on that and cutting out. Um, uh, her diaphragm and, and and reaching up into her thorax and removing the heart. He's, yeah. He seems to be trying to get into the thorax somehow, and he's trying different methods to do that. And perhaps the so if extra he had sorry, go on, John. If he had formal surgical training, he wouldn't need to try all those different methods, surely. No. Um, That's right. So I, th I think it shows more rough anatomical knowledge rather than experience in actual surgery and dissection and like you said it's experimenting it's learning as you go on oh indeed and if you want if you want to take parallels there i mean there there, there are many you know uh, jeffrey Dahmer, <clears throat> possibly fred west and and, and others who uh, once they didn't have surgical experience um you know dennis nielsen is another one uh, who 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 um, um disarticulated their their victims uh, before disposing of them in various ways, um, but even there, you know, the, the, they had rudimentary training in in by working in abattoirs or by dissecting animals when they were children, uh, or by working in the army catering hall. In the case of uh, Dennis Nielsen, um, so so they knew how to fill it, as you say, John, um, oh. and they exercised those skills in 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 in. in in not just disposing of their victims, but in Dharma's case, actually making a display of of, of his victims, um, humiliating them, if you like, by by the very act of mutilation, which is possibly closer to what uh, the Ripper was trying to do. Um, but in his case, he didn't even even do that. He just dismantles Kelly. There's no effort there to, to, to disarticulate or to, or to cleanly cut off the head. Um, uh, you know, at a, at a very basic level, he, he arranges her organs uh, on the bedside table and, and so on. But, um, you know, he, he doesn't try to remove her arms, legs or head in any way. Uh, so I don't think, to, 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 to quote someone in the case, I can't remember who now, I don't even think he displayed the skills of a butcher. Yeah. Mm. I think there's a difference between... Um, I was meaning to come back to this later because I think Trevor said we were going to talk about Alice McKenzie, but there's a phrase that the, the medics use in the Ripper case where they talk about the killer displaying anatomical knowledge. And I think it's only in a couple of cases that they actually mention surgical knowledge. So they obviously draw a division between the two. Some people tend to focus on the fact that when they say anatomical knowledge, they immediately jump to, oh, he was a doctor or he was a surgeon. But I think in the case of Alice McKenzie, he says oh, I think the killer displayed anatomical knowledge in doing this. And when you look at the list, list of our injuries, there, you know, there wasn't actually much done. And I think what they refer to in these cases is the knowledge to have killed someone quickly and quietly. You know, usually in this That's case, the, thought, of yeah. the, you know, the left carotid artery was severed. 
And it just seems to me that's what they refer to when they say anatomical knowledge. It's the ability to kill someone quickly rather than any specific surgical knowledge, which, you know, as, as Gareth said there with Mary Kelly, I don't think we can draw any uh, conclusions as to surgical knowledge because it's just, you know, an absolute abattoir in there, excuse the pun. So where does that kind of leave us? I mean, as far as it, the way the way I kind of look at it is that if um, Catherine Eddowes, if her injuries show uh, a certain degree of medical knowledge, as in the kidney removal, uh, as the as Doctor Mark had said earlier, and um, and then as Win Weston Davies uh, when he w- discusses the uh, the actual incision, then it you know it, if you believe that they were all killed by the same um, perpetrator, then he, the perpetrator would have medical knowledge across all of the victims. But see, I don't. If, I, I think there's still this preconception amongst them that it, the kidney was targeted, as yeah. opposed to he was pulling everything out of the. He was cutting and pulling, cutting and pulling, cutting and pulling, cutting and pulling. He cuts through the parotid. Damn it! He cuts through the. Thing that covers the kidney that I still can't remember the word for. He cuts through that, pull, you know, cuts, rips, and eventually, if you start at the front of somebody and work your way down to the ground, if they're laying on their back, you're going. I mean, I understand the kidney's well hidden, but if you're cutting and pulling and cutting and pulling and cutting and pulling, you're going to run out of stuff to cut and pull at some point. You're going to reach the hidden bits at the back. And. That's he's reaching and rooting and pulling, rooting and pulling. He grabs the kidney and goes. I mean, there there's always this perception that well, he was targeting the kidney, and it's very hard to get to. Therefore, he must have anatomical knowledge. Yeah, I don't I, think I, there's any evidence of that. I completely agree with that, Ali. The thing that always strikes me about these medical reports when they talk about the cuts, they always refer to jagged cuts or rough cuts or you know, the, the, those two cuts next to each other. That doesn't sound like someone who knows what they're doing. That's someone that's tearing it open and, as you say, then rooting around inside and pulling stuff out. And, you know, with poor old Catherine Eddowes, he, he basically emptied her cavity, just, you know, chucking all the stuff out over their shoulders. And, as you say, eventually you're going to get to the ground level and think, oh, I'll take that and off you go. And Mary Kelly is like the ultimate expression of what Catherine Eddowes was given time and privacy. You know, I mean, it, that would have been Eddowes if she, he had had that amount of time and privacy. I don't think there's any intent. It was, you know, the grab bag, for lack of a tasteful word. Yeah. So we're in Mitre Square. That's what I was just going to come on to, Mark. Mark Ripper, you have the floor. Okay. So um, I think, I mean, given, given the, the topic of this podcast, it seems like a good time to have a closer look at the experiments which Trevor Marriott undertook with a number of experts um, whom he commissioned to help him establish how easy it would have been for the killer to extract organs from the bodies of Catherine Eddowes and Annie Chapman. And uh, Trevor Marriott, as as people probably know, published um, several photographs of uh, of operations which had, which had occurred and had occurred, um, you know, and three operations, in fact, one of which, the first of which, occurred on a person of indeterminate sex. He doesn't say what the sex is, and that was the removal of um, a kidney. And two further operations 
one on a deceased patient and one on a living patient. And those were both hysterectomies. And he published the, the outcomes of, of these, along with statements from his experts, in his book in 2008, The Evil Within. And he's since republished them in uh, his e-book, um, The Secret Police Files. So we have this, uh, this evidence which Marriott provides. We have the statements from his experts and we have the, the images. So what I've been uh, curious about recently have been some of how exactly you know what went on during these operations and what they really show us um, about the Whitechapel murders. And also, in view of the fact that it's 2015 now and being a serious ripperologist is, is a difficult job, and um, you know things like the the debacle which is going on at the museum down the road, um, things like that which are causing the ethics of the discipline to be called into question. I think it's worth a look and, at, at what uh, what if any uh, questions are raised by Trevor Marriott's experiments. So, as I say, three operations: one nephrectomy um, done in Jack the Ripper style through the front, um, cutting to the back. And two hysterectomies, one on a, on a deceased patient and one on a living patient. Um, for the deceased patients, it's, there is such a thing, as people probably know, as leaving one's body to medical science. It's something you can do, you can say during your life whether that's something you wish to do. Uh, and there is the, in the UK, there is an authority which oversees it, it's called the Human Tissue Authority. And uh, they say, let me f uh, find out what they say about this. If you leave your body for medical science, it, it can be for a number of reasons. You could leave it for, uh, it could be used for anatomical examination, which means the teaching of the structure and function of the human body to students or healthcare professionals. This is on the, um, the Human Tissue Authority's website. It could be for research, scientific studies which improve the understanding of the human body, or it could be for education and training, which is the training of healthcare professionals usually those learning surgical techniques as opposed to anatomical examination. So those are the three reasons for which your body can be used if you leave it to medical science. Now, I have to say at this point, the, the experts who Marriott chose to help him with this task, very highly qualified, senior people in the establishment they work at, um, Dr Ian Calder, uh, the, so these the, these operations were performed at Bedford Hospital. Dr Ian Calder doesn't work at Bedford Hospital, but he is a, a very senior pathologist, worked on several famous cases, which UK listeners will probably be familiar with, Stuart Lubbock case and the Gareth Williams case, the spy in the bag. Case. Yeah, not me. Not you. <laughs> the other guy. <laughs> um, the... Uh, uh, OBGYN, Ed, Edmund Neal, who, who performed the third operation on the living donor, um, was uh, very senior in Bedford Hospital. These are very highly qualified people. Um, the longest um, statement which Marriott provides is from Philip Harrison, who is the Mortuary and Bereavement Services Manager at Bedford Hospital. But he's a guy who won a community award in 2008 for services to people who experience bereavement you know so these are these these are not um there is no criticism at all to be made of these people's professional expertise on the other hand uh, we I, I am still interested in seeing what are the processes which you go through to end up with a photograph of your organs in trevor marriott's book so 
for the deceased patients, they leave their bodies to medical science, and it seems to me that if you leave your body to medical science, you this, this opens up a lot of ethical questions, but you don't get to say who and, and what is to happen, happen to your body after your death. You leave it to medical science, you tr- you're trusting the medical community to do something scientific with it. Whether in, that, in this case this, is, this is falls into one of those three categories, anatomical examination or research or teaching, I'm, abs- I'm really not so sure. Um, it isn't made clear whether there's been any social benefit from, uh, from these uh, experiments. But it may be in the. I'm not a medical bioethicist. It may be in the in the um, you know the um, terminology. Maybe in the description. That is a really good point that never quite occurred to me before. But well, it, it comes up in in things like transplant transplantation. So there was cases. There've been cases in the UK, for example, going back about 25 years, where. Organs for transplantation were, apparently, this is what I read, had arrived in England, I think it probably was, from Northern Ireland, and they were marked on, on, the, on the box or on the docket or whatever it was, um, only for transplantation into a Protestant recipient. But you can't do that. Uh, as it happens, in that case, what I read is they overlooked the, um, the wishes of the deceased because you can't say where your organs should end up. You can't say... I only want my organs to go into a white man. You can't say that. Uh, there was a case in America where the same thing happened for, I think it was the son of someone who was fairly senior in the KKK, and the son died, and the, the KKK guy, I, I believe, said, I only want his organs to go to a white person, and he wasn't allowed to do that. You, you can't dictate as, as a donor what happens to those organs after your death. I wonder, see, that's interesting to me, because not that I would deny my organs going to a black person what do I care but I would I I don't know I guess if I knew for a fact that my liver was going to go to some alcoholic who'd like drank his life away because he was at the top of the donor list instead of like the 16 year old kid who had cancer I may not want to give my liver either you know what I mean so I mean it's I mean, this is, this is what the, the whole thing raises for me. It raises a number of really interesting ethical questions. And you might stand differently from where I stand on those sorts of matters. In the case I was talking the KKK case, which I was talking about before, there were some surgeons who said that they'd had African-American um, donors who said they wanted their organs to go to African-American recipients. And the reason they wanted it was that they thought there was a two-tier health system and that actually a lot of African-Americans didn't have the financial resources to access organ transplantation mm-hmm. and they wanted to equalise that situation because there was an inequality there. So there was actually there were some people who said, well, maybe you should be able to articulate who you want your organs to go to if it equalises an existing inequality. So... Right. This is where this is because it's an ethical issue. There isn't necessarily a, a, a clear um, distinction between what's right and what's wrong. I mean, in the UK, we have gone some distance towards allowing donors to have more say over what happens to their organs, and this, I think, is chiefly because there was this case. I'm going to read to you just a little bit from a book called Transplantation Ethics by Robert Veach and Lainey Ross. So in 2008, the UK media publicised the story of Rachel Leake, 
whose daughter Laura Ashworth died on April the 2nd, two days after an asthma attack. Leek had kidney failure and could have used a kidney, but her daughter's kidneys were given to strangers on the grounds that a deceased donor's organs cannot be directed but must be allocated according to the allocation process. The family was quite frustrated, especially because Ashworth had talked about serving as a living donor for her mother. Leek died a year later in August 2009. In March 2010, the National Health Service Blood and Transplant Committee issued a revised policy document that set out the circumstances whereby a request for a specific allocation of a deceased donor's organ could be considered. Uh, two, two subsections, the death of an intended living donor, and number two, an organ from a deceased donor that might benefit a close family member or friend. If the regulation they go on to say had been in place at the time of Ashworth, Ashworth, uh, Ashworth I should say, his death, uh, Leek would have been the recipient of a kidney from her daughter and might not have died from the septicemia that she fought for the last three months of her life. So it's a really sad case there of someone who actually could have got a living donation from her daughter. The daughter sadly passed away and then she had no right to her daughter's organs. It just went into the general general allotment process. Hmm. So the law corrects that to some extent. The, 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 or the revised policy document corrects that to some extent so people do have some say over what happens to their organs after their death. But basically, I think for the two deceased patients in Trevor Marriott's studies, patient one who, um, who underwent the, the nephrectomy, post-mortem nephrectomy, patient two who underwent uh, post-mortem hysterectomy, I don't think either of them necessarily would have been able to stipulate in advance what happens to their organs after their death. Do we know if the circumstances of the individual, like for instance, um, and this doesn't, and we probably don't know this in Trevor Marriott's case, but what about like um, prison inmates, for instance, who die? Typically, if available, their bodies are released to the family, but do we know in the UK if that is a bureaucratic decision? To some um, extent, to some extent, it is. I mean, it, so the question really is, who owns your body after your death? Um, and I think natural assumption is that you know I own my body after my death, and really I don't. There are there are statutory instruments in place to ensure that it's, it's buried decently, for example. I don't actually have an awful lot of say over what happens to my body. And I think certainly if you go through down that route of leaving your body to medical science, which I assume these people must have done, this is the only way I think that, that an operation could have been performed on them, is if they'd actually given consent during life for that to happen. Not, not consent for the, for the actual operation which occurred, but consent for medical science to use the bodies in interests of furthering human knowledge. Or mm-hmm. if the, the circ- and I believe there are stipulations to that, at least the uni- in the United States. If you're a victim of the, a crime, the authorities are allowed to keep and preserve whatever they may want. Um, they, their interests would trump the interests of the family to have the entire body available for burial, for instance. We know of cases where there are portions of John F. Kennedy's brain preserved, um, you know, tissue samples of victims of crime and things like that. Um, so I'm wondering if, or, or like I had mentioned it in the case of a, a prison inmate who may die, I don't know what kind of say 
any kind of living will or you know right. if they're if they would like their bodies donated to science there there might also be exceptions i'm really not sure and i'm learning about this stuff as mm-hmm. i go really um i might be wrong i we do know actually that the one of the um murderers in the uh clarence darrow case um in chicago uh of the murder of uh, Bobby Franks, um, Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. Um, one of the convicts, one, it was either Leopold or Loeb, I don't remember which, had his eyes donated after his death in prison. And so his eyes were transplanted into uh, an organ recipient. Uh, so, they, he, so this person was able to benefit from a murderer's eyeballs. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is, of course, in Trevor Marriott's thing. I, again, I, I think it's absolutely no criticism of Trevor Marriott or the experts he used, but it is a little bit difficult for me as a layperson to know what the benefit of his experiments was. If, if, you're, if your body is used for medical science, and it's something, just to take a completely stereotypical uh, example, if your body is then used in a quest for a cure for cancer, I think people perceive there is a social benefit from that. But if your body is used to find out whether Jack the Ripper might have extracted Catherine Eddowes' kidney, I'm not sure there is a social benefit from that. So I think In a book a, for somebody else to profit off of. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, this wasn't just given out for, you know, the benefit of the public. First of all, it's a murder mystery that's 100 years old. What is the, the, the overall benefit? But it's sure. not like this information was donated for free. He gets paid for every public appearance. He gets paid for his books. Somebody donated their body to medical science to be profited off of by somebody else. You may not be condemning and judgy. That's what I'm here for. And it is interesting, even um, in the cases of uh, the U.S. government um, testing the effects of certain ballistic, um, you know, certain gunshot wounds, certain, you know, weapons as a fact on a human body, they're not even allowed in most cases to use cadavers. They have to use a pig cadaver. So, and I'm, I, I think we've probably all seen television documentaries about true crime cases where the um, producers of the television show would have to use a pig cadaver or something like that who would, you know... A, a body of an animal that would most resemble that of a human um, because they just don't have access to human cadavers for entertainment purposes. Sure. Yeah. It does seem, it does yeah. seem unusual to undertake <sighs> operations of this sort, even on deceased patients. It's questionable whether it even achieves that mark, you know, leaving aside the, 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 the ethical questions, uh, which, as we've heard, are considerable. I mean, you, we, we must also sort of address whether or not such experiments actually tell us anything about the Ripper murders anyway. Oh. I mean, the, the, yeah. uh, John uh, John Reese mentioned earlier the the, the fact that you know, one of the one of the bodies, uh, presumably not the one undergoing the hysterectomy, was male um, and rather large. Yes. I should point out there that in in Marriott's book he doesn't say male. He says it's a person, but he doesn't say one male. of one of the um, ones he shows on his tour um, mm-hmm. for the kidney is definitely a man. You you can see it's a man from the body. Mm-hmm. 
Um, There's and, actually and that, pictures of these deceased cadavers, like, on his tour? Yeah, he shows them on the tour, yeah. Um, he shows them on the tour. When, when, when I went to see his tour, I was uh, actually went with a friend who had uh, completed a uh, biomedical sciences degree, and uh, she was saying that a lot of what you were saying was utter nonsense, but uh, there we go. Um, what, what, what strikes me about it, though, is, you know, as someone who's done an undergraduate psychology degree... Um, Human experimentation um, in psychology, and I imagine must be the same in medicine as well, needs an ethics committee approval. Um, you know, I, you know I, I had to do a study where I questionnaires to somebody, and I had to resubmit it to the ethics committee three times. I guess as well, John, you, 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 know, you, you will have been drilled in... Uh, you know the the sort of Karl Popper type uh, philosophy of experimentation and so yeah. forth um, in in uh, you know statistical analysis and and and, and so on uh, such that you can make a, a judgment as to whether the experiment experimental conditions you're setting up are are, are a valid test of what um, you're trying to prove. Those are both interesting points. I mean. John, just to take your point first, the, as far as I can establish, these all three operations were carried out at Bedford Hospital. So I've written to the um, Assistant Director of Research at Bedford Hospital, Assistant Director of Research and Development, um, just to see what sort of consents were in place for this to happen. Now, obviously, deceased patients, deceased patients don't give consent, um, but the third, the third operation, the, the hysterectomy from a living donor, You'd imagine there was a, a consent. Uh, there was a consent would need to be obtained uh, in that case. So I've written to find out. He hasn't been back to me yet. I think to take your point, Gareth. I, I think that's there's a couple of things about Philip Harrison's um, statement in Trevor's book which do bother me slightly. Um, Philip Harrison is the, the mortuary and bereavement services manager at Bedford. He prov he provides, as I said, the longest statement um, which Trevor reproduces of the four experts he talks to. I don't know why um, at the moment. I don't think it's a suspicious thing, but I don't know why Philip Harrison misspells his own name. He spells it with two L, Philip with two L's in the book. That's not how his name is spelt, as far as I can establish. And I don't know also why Philip Harrison describes it as Trevor goes on to describe it elsewhere. For example, on JTR Films, he describes the removal of the kidney as a controlled operation, a controlled experiment, which is not a controlled experiment. Con controlled in that sense means only that they were relatively methodical about how they went about it. It wasn't controlled in the sense that there was a control. Do you, do you know what I mean? That's, that's yes. the meaning of the word controlled and controlled experiment. So I do wonder why someone of you know, extensive clinical experience would not know what the word controlled meant in the controlled experiment. Um, so, I do, yes, there are real questions as to what is the utility of these, of these experiments. I think the third experiment with the living donor is the more interesting one to think about. In terms of consent, the, the limits of consent, if you consent to uh, your hysterectomy, so your, let's say your hysterectomy, because this, this clearly is the case, right? The hysterectomy was clinically necessary, um, performed on a living patient and whose um, you know, uh, medical needs uh, were protected at all times. Clearly that's the case. If you consent to your womb being photographed afterwards, to whom does the photograph of the womb belong? Who can publish it? Who can reproduce it? If you consent to your womb being used in the course or in the interests of study or research, can you stipulate 
does consent go far enough to enable you to stipulate? But I don't want it to, in a Jack the Ripper book. I want it to help out with, with people who have uterine disorders or infertility <laughs> issues, but I don't actually want it in a Jack. Do you know what I mean? So is well, there a I, consent there? I want to interrupt here because I'm not fully aware. Did he say what the woman was having a hysterectomy for? Because my thought is... The only way I can see this being approximating this woman, live patient, a couple of years ago having a hysterectomy, even close to approximating anything that had research or value would be if they used an absolutely barbaric, archaic, antiquated surgical technique for, for, for no honest-to-God reason that I can think of. We've advanced several decades in, in how we perform these surgeries. So the, the actual surgery itself, in the third case, the hysterectomy from a living donor, the surgery was not done with an antiquated technique. It was done according to modern convention. What the what the photograph shows is the uterus lying on a piece of cloth to show how stained. Uh, this is the theory: is that it shows how stained you would expect the piece of cloth found at Goulston Street to be if it had contained a uterus extracted from a living donor, or from a, a donor, a recently deceased donor, in the case of Catherine Eddowes. So the techniques and things, I have no doubt that that lady was treated with the utmost care. I have absolutely no doubt about it. Um, however, I do have a book which I can see a photograph of her uterus in. And that sort of, that I do wonder about that. Is that something to which you can consent? How, what are the limits of the consent which people obtain before uh, operations like that are, are take place? But there's a really interesting question here to kind of to be examined. I'll know more inevitably when um, when the guy from the hospital gets back to me. But I think in the meantime, I, so the I sole say, purpose of this was to, to see blood stains on a napkin. System. Yes. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Well, has anyone uh, asked, have, hey, Mark, have you approached Trevor Marriott with your questions as far as what kind of consent the uh, patients or the family of, of the deceased patient might have given for the tests to be performed? You know, formally I haven't approached him. I did, I think, once ask him on the boards um, about something about where or when the, the, um, the operations were carried out, but I, he didn't answer me. So, um, on Facebook, that was, I, I, I think, in the end, we have a very transparent system over here. I think that it, it's possible to find out more about this case. I would, I would suggest, no one needs to listen to me, right? But I would suggest that it's probably poor liturgical practice to go around actually opening up the bodies of people living or dead in order to try and obtain any detail about this mystery. That I, I, To me... That goes well beyond what's appropriate in rifurology, and it goes well beyond what I think society would expect rifurologists to do. At the moment, society expects us to be gore peddlers, having our photographs taken with, uh, you know, waxworks of the bodies in the Jack the Ripper Museum for Halloween, which is, I gather, what was happening yesterday. Uh, I, I would suggest that, you know, performing these operations irrespective of whatever whatever the outcomes are, is probably not something to which rifurology needs to go. I'd say as well that all questions of ethics aside, you have to ask the question, what real value do these experiments bring in terms of advancing any knowledge that we have about the case? I mean, it certainly lets Mr Marriott slap a 21st century stamp onto his book. But apart from that, is he actually teaching us anything different about you know, what we already know about the case? 
No, these are these are uh, experiments in order for him to prove his theory. Says let's be. I mean, he says prove or disprove in his book, um, wow. which is interesting because Philip Harris, <laughs> his statement also uses the phrase prove or disprove. I don't know, but um, but, but even, even with that in mind, he's doing his experiments in a lab in the twenty first century under you know laboratory conditions. He's not in any way emulating, other than removing organs, he's That's not in right. any way That's replicating what was done at the time. That's so right. it begs the question, you know, what's the value of this? And why I mean, doing? nothing that he has done would, would replicate the, you know, a living donor, the blood patterning is not exactly. going to be the same as a dead, the, the male who's obese or, you know, larger isn't going to replicate Catherine Edda. I mean, there's no yeah. one-on-one comparisons that can be drawn here. Exactly, and then to brand a controlled experiment without having even a control. what seems to be yeah exactly the basic yeah. knowledge and of we only science. and we it's only just, uh, have a vague description of what the Goldston Street apron piece right. uh, yeah. looked yeah. like. So there's not even a photograph to compare right. to his photograph. Exactly. There's, there's, Go ahead, John. This is the difference between um, experimental validity and ecological validity. Um, what he's doing, you know, experimental validity, it's fine. He's controlling all the situation, you know, um, the organs being removed, where they were removed from, etc. Um, but it doesn't replicate the real world conditions of the murders, so it's low in ecological validity. Um, yeah. You know, the, 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 the donors, are they the same physically as um, the victims? The amount of light had, the amount of time taken. Um, you know, it's all very well saying that, you know... Um, a, a surgeon couldn't remove an organ in under nine minutes or whatever, but presumably a surgeon is trained to do it carefully, um, which is something you know, we've we brought up before five times, I think, you know, that uh, Jack the Ripper wouldn't have done it carefully. He'd have just slashed and grabbed. Um, well, so and, it, it's sorry. not measuring what it's meant to measure. Um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I'm still interested in this idea of property, basically. Uh, the, the, the degree to which your body is property and to the degree to which the bits of your body which come off are also property after they've come off. So, for example, there, there was a recent, uh, relatively recent case uh, called um, known as Yearworth, where the, uh, there were some samples of sperm stored from men who were about to have chemotherapy because they had cancer. So the, store, the sperm was stored uh, in case the chemotherapy treatment interfered with their fertility the sperm spoiled because it was it was allowed to reach the wrong temperature um it was meant to be um, stored in a cool environment and the, the hospital allowed it to reach the wrong temperature the men had to be told and then their chances of using that sperm to um to, to you know to to have a family later on was affected and they they had to various degrees um, you know, psychiatric issues around depression and things as a result. But it's really quite... The law is still struggling. In those cases, that they didn't have a personal injury claim, which would they would have done if the sperm was still in the body, a part attached to you. They had a claim um, about bailment, which was basically, did the hospital look after something which you'd entrusted to them in the, in the way they yeah. should have done? Uh, but questions come up about, as a result of the appeal case in Yearworth, uh, things like, I was impressed by this, which I was reading from um, McBride. So I, I just think these are these are interesting uh, moral dilemmas. Let me see if I can find them. So let's suppose that Lucy is a huge fan of Charlie, a major pop star. She spots Charlie having his hair cut in a West End salon. She manages to get inside the salon 
and collects some of his hair that is lying on the ground. She keeps some of the hair herself and auctions the rest on eBay. Is Lucy guilty of theft? And can she be sued by Charlie for the money she has made from selling his hair? So is the hair that Charlie leaves on the ground in the barbers still his property? Is Are parts of your body property after they've become detached from you? So in the case of the living donor, is that uterus her property after it's become detached from her? Or is the photograph her property? Or is the photograph someone else's property because they took the photograph? Do you know what I mean? These, I think these are really interesting issues to consider. I think in the case of the actual, like, organ, once it leaves your body being your property, I don't believe it is because I think at that point there are, at least here in the U.S., I could be wrong. I'm sure I'll get 800 letters writing in to tell me I'm an idiot. But at that point, when it leaves your body in a medical situation, it's classified as medical waste. So what should be... There's been people who've been questioned, like, can I keep my uterus in a jar at home? And there's, like, laws that say no. I I did not. I I want to make that In some cases, they do make exceptions. (laughs) Um, For religious, uh, I believe. Exactly. And then come back to the question of even if you feel like you concede your property ownership rights over your uterus once you've had the hysterectomy who do those property rights go to who then whose possession is the uterus after it's not attached to your body anymore and if there's a photograph taken of it and it's published in a book about jack the ripper to what extent you are you allowed to object that is a more interest that's an interesting question to me where i honestly don't know the answers to these things at the moment Hmm. Well, and when you think about it all the way through, because, I mean, it really is such a useless experiment that was done because, you know, besides the living donor, the, you know, the living donor case is, you know, very interesting to me on, you know, my own level. But we can presume it was squeezed through a much smaller opening so that it would have been sloughed out. It would have been handled by a gloved hand, I presume, Um, you know, that... all, there's so many that I don't even understand what the purpose at this point of the experiment was. There's literally not a single detail that would have been repre- represented faithfully yeah. as to how it occurred. So you come, it, I mean, not only was it not medically necessary, not only was it not purposeful to the, to the general society, it's just an absolutely useless thing to have done for no purpose. I tend to agree with, with you, personally, I agree with you. My question would be, would an ethics committee also uh, would, would authorise uh, an operation of that sort for those purposes? One of the purviews of an ethics committee is, does it further human knowledge? And I don't think this does in any sense of the word. So I have two unrelated questions I wanted to ask Mark. And this kind of also is, is talking about what Ali, I think, had brought up. I haven't read uh, Trevor Marriott's book where, where this is explained. I own it but i don't read it um the uh (laughs) it's one of those things but my my question is is um you know in the case of of catherine eddowes in the goulston street apron once we 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 know uh, i'm pretty pretty sure we could certainly say immediately after the uterus was removed he wrapped it in the apron and and then took off um, do now, as far as Marriott's attempt to test the blood stains that would have appeared on the apron, I would assume if if the operation was conducted where the the physician's first goal is to treat the patient, 
they would not have removed the uterus and then immediately handed it over to Trevor Marriott to put on a a a you know a piece of cloth to test the his blood uh stain theory you know so even a few minutes um of delay between the removal of the uterus and the placing it on Marriott's cloth would have produced a completely different um result than what we would assume happened in Mitre Square correct Oh, and indeed, furthermore, I don't think the the lady in question um, had her neck cut and um, lost two litres of blood in a very short space of time before they they started the operation. Right. So, <clears throat> and again, you know, John Reese made some points earlier about the ambient temperature and so forth. Um, if, if you like the... Um, environmental or economic factors um, or validity of the experiment. Um, the, the victims of the Ripper suffered large blood loss in a very short space of time before the, the mutilations even commenced. Um, so, uh, again, this casts some uh, significant doubt on the validity of, 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 of experiments such as Trevor's. Yeah, I mean, there's no... That's a realistic... Uh, it would, would allow a realistic experiment to take place for obvious reasons. Yeah, it's been some time since I've read Trevor Marriott's book, but if I'm right, I think he gets very caught up in the semantics of the police reports of the apron at the time and how they, you know, there's some reports that talk about spotting and part of this experiment was to prove that you know it wouldn't spot the apron, it would be drenched in blood, etc., etc. Um, yeah. And there is a, there's a big focus on that side of things and the actual semantics of what's said Rather than any particularly scientific, there's been some discussion about, you know, I think there was a report which suggested that the cloth appeared as if it had, had a knife dragged through it to clean the knife. So we have a very unclear picture, I think, really, of what the how the cloth actually presented. Um, I mean, I would say. Um, Jonathan, my my point, I, I don't honestly see that there would be a massive problem with, I guess as a surgeon, if you remove an organ from the body, you lift it out of the body and place it in like a kidney bowl or something for just, for, for so it can be taken away, why not place it on a clock? I mean, I, honestly, I cannot see that any, any clinical risks were taken with any of this. I, 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 as far as I can judge, and I'm absolutely sure um, the patient's medical needs were were, were met um, 100% through the process. But if the, it problem, was, if the remains, napkin was however, in a kidney right, bowl... But what you're going to say is the problem remains, does it tell us anything about Jack the Ripper? Well, I would have no. some doubt about that. No. Because no. mm. if the cloth is in a kidney bowl, he, Jack the Ripper didn't have a kidney bowl with a cloth resting in exactly. it. He didn't have a flat surface that his napkin would have been... I mean, he may have had it on the ground, possibly, but I don't yeah. even see... You but know, there must be there must be methodological issues there which limit the um, the value of the experiment. I agree. Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to episode 67 of Rippercast. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. Thanks for listening, as Jonathan would uh, usually say. And uh, you can find us. You've obviously already found us if you're listening. But if you've forgotten how you found us, you can find the podcast on uh, casebook.org or search for Rippercast on iTunes. And also, come and have a look at our Facebook group. Search for Rippercast on Facebook. Pop over and say hi. Thanks, for uh, everybody, for being on. Thanks, Trevor. 
Thank you, Trevor. Thank you.